Hello, very good evening to you. Welcome to Indie Live Radio. This is the locker room number number one for sport. We're here every week speaking about not only football, lots of sports tonight. And I'm joined by my co-host or partner in crime. I think it's partner in crime. Matthew, how's it going? I'll, I'll go with partner, Michael. That sounds quite good. Yeah, so it's been a, a funny week for Scottish football especially Hamilton, we'll come on to that later as well if you want, um, but um, Matthew... Just don't uh, mention the J word. Yeah, yeah, uh, the jail, I think Matthew's <laughs> talking about that. Um, so as well as Matthew tonight, we uh, we are joined by David Ferguson tonight, he is a journalist as well, well, um, uh, um, and uh, he... You, he used to cover rugby with Bill. You, you were telling us about uh, you used to commentate with Bill, uh, the late Bill McLaren on BBC. Yeah, that's right, Michael. Well, I learned from Bill, really. I mean, I, Bill was the BBC radio and television commentator, of course. And um, I grew up, I, I moved I moved all over Scotland in my early years, which is where my sporting love came from, I think. I started out in Paisley, first five years, so I'm a lifelong buddy. And um, St Mirren fan, season ticket holder. I ended. I went across to St Andrews. My dad was a teacher. Took us the family there. So it was from football to golf, and then we went up north to Drumnadrocket. He was a, a teacher, head teacher at a small school just outside Drumnadrocket, up the Glen, and um, called Balmain. So it was Shinty there, of course, a two cup which I loved. And then we moved down to the borders. And so I don't know what my dad was running from, to be honest, but we, <laughs> we ended up down in the borders. And it was rugby, of course, as a religion there. And I became a journalist in the borders. Rugby was the first love for everybody down, down here. And, and um, I, I got to know Bill McLaren very well. And he schooled me in um, commentary and um, a lot of my journalism. And he was just a fantastic character, a lovely man to know. And and a fantastic guy in terms of sport. He had a great love of sport as a whole, not just rugby, and um, he was great to learn from, yes. Well, welcome to the Indie Live Regal Sport family, David. <laughs> um, Thank you. And stuff. Good to join um, you both. You're here to speak to us tonight, um, well, um, to comment on the Six Nations, got the kickoff. well... I don't know if they use that word, kick-off and rugby, I'm not really sure. Of course we do, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. You see you guys from the West Coast. <laughs> no, yeah. There's only one game in town. David, and, Michael said, Michael said kick-off for basketball a few weeks ago, I think. Yeah. I said that about hockey as well. Um, it's good. But there's a big game tomorrow, no, I'm not talking about... Uh, the football. I'm talking about Scotland and England, the old, the old enemy, David. Indeed, there is, and I mean, and it's, it's it's amazing. I mean, when I was at the Scotsman, and it, yeah, I wrote about rugby laterally, although I did a lot of sport. When when we started doing analytics and analysis of of what was online, you know, when that started appearing in journalism, the one event in the year in the Scotsman, I know that Scotsman's more an East Coast paper, um, but the one event in a year that, that attracted most interest in sport, and even above the old firm game, was the Calcutta Cup match. And mm -hmm. we found it quite staggering that what it showed was that everybody in Scotland, or, or a huge percentage of people in Scotland, even if they're not necessarily rugby fans, like the idea of Scotland and England meeting, of course, every year, uh, and whatever sport it is. And 
you know, the interest in, in my match report from the Scotland-England game just was phenomenal. You know, you went from having 30 or 40,000 hits to um, several million hits uh, from all over the world just on that game. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's something that the players, I remember Gregor Townsend when he was a player for Scotland, he couldn't quite get his head around the fact that I remember one year we won four games in the championship and we lost to England. And he and everybody seemed to feel that that year was a, a huge failure. And the following year, we lost four games in the Six Nations, but we beat England. And everyone saw that season as being a success. And I remember yeah. Gregor Townsend saying, this isn't right, you know, which our season shouldn't be judged on one game. But that's the reality, that, that people tend to feel if we've beaten England, which we're always underdogs for, then it's it's we can live with ourselves. It's a good, it's been a good year. Um even if it if it doesn't materialise um, into any success anywhere else in the championship, but yeah, it's a huge game. We haven't beaten England since 1982 down at Twickenham, um, and so it's a long record. We thought we were going, to, we were on the verge of doing it two years ago. So the last time at Twickenham, it was a crazy game where England ran up 30 points in the first half. We scored just before half time, um, and we had lots of people laughing that that was the start of Scotland's comeback, but it, it was so ridiculous. England were way out ahead. So you were looking at, to put that into football parlance for you, um, Michael, I would say you were looking at England being 5-1 up at half time. Um, and it, the second half just became ridiculous where Scotland came out, ran at England, just attacked, didn't care much about defence, just went at them and threw the ball about with nothing to lose. And they ended up going level with just a two minutes of the game to go. It was phenomenal. And so it ended up virtually, again, if I put it into football balance for, for a lot of the listeners, it was like 6-6 they'd got to. So England had scored again, but Scotland Scotland had rattled right up and gone and actually gone past them. So, I mean, with and sorry, it finished a draw. I'm, I'm actually recounting that wrongly. We got to two minutes to go and we were ahead. So it was like 6-5 we'd gone into the lead. So it was, I think the score was about 38, 38-31 um, going into the last two minutes. And nobody could believe it, of course. You know, England were just shell-shocked. The stadium was quiet. The commentators couldn't believe it. And Scotland only, all Scotland then had to do was hang on for two minutes. And, and actually, it went right down to the final um the clock went into 80 minutes in, the, in rugby, it's 80 minutes. And of course, in rugby, they don't really have injury time as such. When the clock gets to 80 minutes, that's the game. The game should be up, but they will play until the ball goes out. So they don't play until the referee's whistle. They play until the ball goes out or the referee blows for an infringement. Um, and so Scotland, the clock went past 80 minutes and Scotland were leading in a game that they had no business of being anywhere near. And we thought, this is it. First time ever. Scotland are going to win. Not ever, but first time in, in our lifetimes, first time in, in, in many lifetimes, first time since 1982 that Scotland would win at Twickenham. The, the great hoodoo done, you know, the uh, monkey off our back and thought, incredible. And then England attacked in the last, you know, they held on to the ball. They wouldn't let it go out. They fought to keep the ball in play. They'd suddenly come alive and they managed to score about two or three minutes. They kept the ball in for about two or three minutes and they managed to score um, to draw the game. And for Scotland, it felt like a loss, bizarrely. And Gregor Townsend's been talking about it this week. He, of course, is the Scotland coach now. Uh, he was coaching that game two years ago. 
And um, he's been saying this week how it was bizarre that it, it felt like a loss, but to have had a draw, a first draw in England in, in Twickenham in a long time was quite an achievement. So I don't think we're going to expect the same game this time. England know what's coming this time. They know that this Scotland team are dangerous and can score tries. And that's something that's different to previous, um, the last decade or two. We can score tries, we've got dangerous players. So I don't think we'll see quite the same level of scoreline. David, you've made me cry reminiscing about that game because I was there. <laughs> um, Sorry. And uh, like at halftime, I actually not left the stadium as such, but you know, at the back, you sort of walk outside the Twickenham to get to the bar area. Yep. I actually left this, my seat and never came back for a lot of that second half because I thought it was finished. And then I heard the noise and looked up at the screens and saw the score and quickly ran back in because like you were saying, I just couldn't believe what I was actually seeing. But I'd given up at halftime, like you were saying. I'd given up. I thought I'll just have a few drinks at the bar, have mm. a laugh. There was a, there was quite a few Scottish fans at the back, to be honest. Um, yeah, that, that's the that's the kind of part time uh, rugby fan for you. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there's Matthew. The number of people who they don't own, not many own up to it, but I'm, I'm aware of. Uh, some people who did leave the ground at halftime went, oh. went to pubs, wandered up into London or to the tube to get into London. Get into the London by the time the game's finished, and couldn't believe what they what they saw and what they heard. And it must have been grating if you spent the money to go down to London and go to the game. But I tell you, I mean, it, it is it is a schoolboy error because if you phone Scot, if you follow Scotland as long as I have followed Scotland and football and rugby and what have you, and in all sports. You always know there's a potential for us. You know, when Lee Griffiths fired over his, his free kicks against England and we did the same sort of thing there, you're thinking, we're going to win this game. Um, and then they come back to bite you. But there's, I've followed Scotland and when people ask me for predictions all the time, people say, how's it going to go? What's the score? And, and they laugh at me when I say, you know, we can win this, you know, against England or France or whoever, Australia, New Zealand. I've seen Scotland beat every team in the world apart from New Zealand, but I've seen us beat New Zealand in sevens as well, to know that it's possible. And that's that's what we live for in sport, isn't it? The, the art of the possible, the hope. And while we lose more often than not, and the, the chances of it happening are, are always slim, it is possible. And, and that's what we'll have lots of people tuning into this game this weekend in the same way. So what's, um, can you give us a wee bit of background about Scotland this year, uh, obviously it's a bit different because of the, the COVID and stuff, but what's their form going to this game, uh, David? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting team and, you know, we, they've been, Gregor Townsend uh, took over now, be three years ago now, I think four years ago from Vern Cotter. Vern Cotter had come in and Scotland team were all over the place at that stage. They were being well beaten and they were very inconsistent. Vern Cotter was a New Zealander. He had good. Uh, he 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 did well in French rugby as well, and then he came to Scotland, and he was a hard uh, South Island farmer type who came in, couldn't be bothered with any hyperbole, couldn't be bothered with mucking around, and he really got the players to focus and become very um, hard, hardened and hard to beat. And so through his time, we became a much stronger side that was hard to beat. The, probably the, the last game that he had, um, one of the last games was World Cup, where we could have beaten Australia in the quarterfinals, apart from a refereeing error in the last minute yeah. that, that handed Australia a, a penalty. And we would have been in the World Cup semi-finals then for the first time since 1991. Um, 
Gregor then came in and said, okay, we're really hard to beat. And as a new coach, many people will remember Gregor as quite a quite a um, exciting, entertaining rugby player. I went to school with Gregor at Galashiels Academy. He was a couple of years below me. And I saw him come through as a youngster. And Gregor was always, he loved his football. He's a he's Rangers daft as well. Probably won't like me saying that because that splits him in the city, obviously, straight away. But he grew up um, playing, he played for Hutchie Vale um, Football Club in Edinburgh as a youngster until he had to make a decision about 13, 14 when the Hutchie Vale age grade team he played for was on the same day as the rugby team. Moved to a Sunday, I think, and he had to decide which sport. So he went with rugby. And he went on to become one of Scotland's greatest ever players. He was a record cap holder with 82 caps. And he played for the British Lions in a successful win over, the, uh, over South Africa in, in 1997. So he's a great player, but he was known for trying things. Gregor was always one for, let's go and attack, let's go and take people on. And so he's come into the Scotland team and he's tried to blend that defence, hard defence, with a new flair and attack. Now, he's been helped by having Finn Russell at 10. So Finn's come through as a just a fantastic player, Finn, who has that attitude. He just wants to play for fun. He wants to go out there and, and try things. And he's been key to Scotland in the last few years. I'd go as far as to say when Finn's not playing, we're nowhere near the quality of team because he conducts things at standoff. You know, he has a, a an ability that means opposition sides don't know what's going to happen. So in rugby, if you've got a nine and a 10 who just passed the ball and they don't do much else, they pass the ball, they maybe kick now and again. Defences can just drift and they call it just a drift. You can just drift onto the outside channel so you can close teams down pretty easily because you don't need to worry about the players at nine and 10. Both our nine and 10, Ali Price and Finn Russell have really changed that for Scotland. They attack, they go direct, they'll go at teams. So as a result, teams can't drift outside. So what that means is even if Finn doesn't get through, he can pop passes and there's space for people outside. That gives us new attacking options. And we've now got, we've obviously got Stuart Hogg at fullback, who people have known about for some time. Um, he gets a bit of space at fullback. He's another, probably one of the most exciting players in Scotland. I would say going back to Andy Irvin, which is 30, 40 years ago at fullback. We've had a good, few good, really good fullbacks, but Stuart Hogg is world class. And you've got him at fullback who is looking to get on to Finn Russell's passes. We've got a very experienced player on the wing in Sean Maitland, a New Zealander who just does the right things. He's just innately clever. He's one of these very intelligent rugby players on the field. There are few with his level of rugby intelligence. And then on the other wing, we've got a new winger, Duhan van der Merwe, who's a really strong running South African. There's a lot of people in Scotland not too happy with the number of South Africans that have been brought across here. They play for three years in Scotland and then they qualify to play for Scotland. They've got no connection with the country. I'm very uncomfortable with it, I have to say. They've changed the law now that you have to be five years in a country before you can play for that country. And while the law is there, I can't criticise Gregor Townsend too much because he's doing what other every other nation is doing. But I don't like it. and I don't think it's right. But putting that aside, you know, Duhan van der Merva has definitely been one of the, the best players in an Edinburgh jersey in, number, in recent years. He's signed to go down to the English Premiership next season. He's, he's so strong that, you know, he'll take players with him. So he takes a lot of bringing down, but he's also very fast, very quick. So we've got two very good wingers there and Stuart Hogg. The English will be worried about the three of them because they, you have to work hard to bring them all down to stop them all. 
And then inside, really interesting in the back line, um, Chris Harris is starting at 13. He's played before. He, he's, he's not a flashy player, but he's a very strong defensive player, clever. He knows how to, how to defend properly and, and deal with an English drift if it's there. But in, inside him, at number 12, starting for the first time for Scotland, we have Cameron Redpath. Now, many people in Scotland will remember Cammy's father. Cam's father was Brian Redpath, who was Gregor Townsend's partner in crime. Um, uh, when Gregor played 10, Brian Redpath was often nine, scrum half. And Brian was a captain for Scotland. He retired after 2003 World Cup. And he, went, he played in France, and that's where Cam was born. And then he came to England to play for Sale and um, Gloucester. And he settled in England, Brian and his family. So Cam's come up through the English ranks. And Eddie Jones tried to pull a, a fast one a year or two ago by naming Cam in an England, full England squad to go on tour to South Africa. And um, we don't exactly know the details, but Cam had been had played for England at under 18, under 19, had been a star in those teams. And he managed to pull out of Eddie Jones's England tour squad to South Africa with an injury, which was very handy because if he'd gone on that tour and even come off the bench, which Eddie Jones was planning to do, he would have been committed for England. Now, Cam has explained in the last few weeks that um, he played for England under 18, under 19, because it was on offer to him down south. He was able, he was trained by Johnny Wilkinson, the great um, England standoff. And he said it was a great opportunity for him. But I don't think he was ever convinced he would play for England when it got to the highest level. So we never knew which way it was going to go. He's kept his cards close to his chest. His dad's been very clear that he's been desperate for him to play for Scotland, but he would leave it up to him to make his decision. And Cam was contacted by Gregor Townsend a few weeks ago and said, I'm, I want to play for Scotland. I'm desperate. So it's great to see him. But that's going to be a real challenge for him he's a young lad um, he's coming in for his first international it, mean, it, makes, it means he's, he's qualified for Scotland he can't go anywhere now after tomorrow's game but uh, it's a big test for him um, there and then you know um, looking through the pack we've got a, quite a young pack but a good pack that has really um, worked hard and got together over the last year or two they will really come up against quite a test in England England England's pack is, is arguably the best in the championship Um Definitely in certain elements of it. Mario Otoji, the second row is, is phenomenal. The back row that they've got of Mark Wilson, Tom Curry, Billy, Billy Bunapola, they're just phenomenal players. Um, but we've got some really good players and some of them are quite young. They're coming into their mid-20s now and starting to really start to put uh, and make a name for themselves. Jamie Ritchie, particularly Hamish Watson. Hamish Watson, I rate, is a, is a world-class flanker. Um, Johnny Gray, Scott Cummings, we know about. Front row, we've, we've been depleted with hookers being out injured, so George Turner steps in for his first start in his 13th international. Uh, Hooker, he's got a big job to do up against Jamie George. Rory Sutherland and Xander Fagus on either side. They, they're, they're possibly not world-class yet, those guys, but um, they certainly are, are on a, a really good upwards path, so this is a big test for them. So that's that's this, the Scotland team. It's looking really quite exciting. There are, there are bits that England will think are, are perhaps weak, with some youngsters, some inexperience that they'll get at, perhaps at hooker, perhaps at centre. But, um, you know, it's, it's a decent Scotland team. I just want to ask you, David, how weird would it be tomorrow uh, watching the game when the both teams come out? Because they're usually like a light show or whatever before the game. But how 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 um, how different would it be for there the not to be any fans there to, to send the national anthem? Yeah, I, I think, Michael, it's a really good question because 
I think it will have an impact. How much of an impact? You know, at Twickenham, and, and Matthew, I'm sure you'll back me up here. I mean, I, I didn't enjoy the Twickenham atmosphere, and not just because it was England, but, you know, the Welsh the atmosphere in the Principality Stadium in Cardiff is phenomenal, one of the best in the world. Twickenham was, was like a deathly hush often. It's a massive stadium. The English fans tend to sort of sit there and chew their sandwiches and, and sort of wait for something to happen. You know what Scottish fans are like. They'll often get up and try and get their team going. So Murrayfield was always much better. Um, and I actually think there's something in what Neil Lennon's been saying with Celtic. I know Celtic can be going so badly that people are not interested in listening to what Neil's got to say, really, because they'll just see it as excuses. But there's definitely something in how players are coping or not coping with the lack of supporters you know, urging them on and cheering them on. And when Scotland have pulled off big wins against England and they have they have done, these been monumental occasions. I remember 2000, 2006, 2008, Murrayfield, big games. The crowd were massive. The players seemed to be dead in their feet at times in the second half and the crowd were up. They were cheering them on at Murrayfield, getting them go. To, and, and the players themselves said afterwards, they really lifted us, made us believe that we still had something in the tank and it could still go. And, you know, it's the same for both teams, but yeah, I, th I think it's going to have an impact. Um, I, I just hope it's not something that, that makes it harder for our players. Of course, that game's tomorrow at quarter to five. Um, I think the game's on STV tomorrow, David. It is, um, yeah. As well. But yeah, yeah, it's going to be a bit weird because me and Matthew have been speaking about lots of sporting events, especially football as well, because you miss that atmosphere. And because rugby's a, a brilliant atmosphere, no matter who Scotland are playing, but because like they're playing like the old enemy, as it were, in, in, a, in a nice possible way saying that, you miss that kind of atmosphere there, you know? Yeah, you do. There's no doubt there's something special about a Calcutta Cup atmosphere. You know, it's 150 years since the very first inter rugby international in the world. And that was between England and Scotland, Scotland and England in Edinburgh, Rayburn Place in Edinburgh. That was 150 years ago this year. And there's a few games that didn't happen because of war and what have you. So it's not quite the 150th international, but um, 150 years. And it's always lit up the rugby calendar, if not the sports calendar. And we can remember 1990, Ali McCoy became big friends with John Jeffrey and Gavin Hastings after uh, 1990. And, and, you know, there was a coming together across sports when Scotland won the Grand Slam. And, um, you know, I think if this team can do it again this weekend, you know, I think you'll see a lot more people outside the normal rugby fans that will... Um, start to get to know the stars that we have in this team and, and we do have real world class talents right the way through this team and of course a lot of them are now playing to try and prove that by getting themselves into British and Irish Lions squad this summer if that goes ahead or for next summer and this is a game where you do that you show yourself up as being a team that can play well on the road that can win away from home and that can play well if not beat England uh, that puts you right into um, contention for British and Irish Lions jersey. So, I mean, see, Ben Russell, I mean, I, I think he could be one of the keys this weekend because, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen Scotland-England clashes and Scotland try and out-muscle probably the most muscly, biggest team in the Six Nations and, strugg and Scotland struggled to do that. So we've always missed that player who can bring something different. And Vin Russell, I've seen him obviously playing for Scotland, but one of the games I was really impressed was now that he's at Racing 92, 
and he was playing against Munster in the champion, the European Champions League. And he just brought a different dynamic to the game. He, he, like you said, he brought things that players and defenders, defences in particular, were not expecting. And I think England might actually struggle coming up against that for Scotland because they're not used to Scotland having that different dynamic that they now possess with all these players like Finn Russell in the team. Yeah, Matthew, I, I, I agree to some extent. Um, there's, there's two sides to that. One, Finn is, Finn is brilliant and he's brilliant to play with. And a bit like Gregor, the key is they'll play really well provided the players around about them are on the same wavelength. You know the, the discussions we'll have around Andy Robertson playing for Scotland and why he maybe doesn't seem to play as well for Scotland as when he's playing at Liverpool. And one of the, the simple reasons for that is he has, he, he's not got the same responsibility on him at Liverpool to carry a team or to have to be the one making all, making all the running. And he's got players to play off who know if he flicks a ball inside, he knows somebody's going to be there probably to give him a one-two. Not always the case with Scotland because they're, they're chasing their tails an awful lot more. Similar with Finn Russell. When players round about him are on, on his wavelength, and it was like this with Gregor Townsend, um, then they can really fly and they can really pierce teams and open the teams up. If they're not, then it can often look like Finn's off his game because he passes a ball to where he thinks somebody should be and a ball goes on the ground or it gets intercepted. And that's the key. Um, you know, this weekend he's got new players beside him. He's got Cami Redpath beside him and Chris Harris. He's got Duhan van der Merva. Not played a lot with him. Um, we've got to get them on the same wavelength as him and and. You know the, the other side to that is England know what's coming now. I would Finn's not a surprise anymore, and you know what it's like in any level of sport, international level. You look at the, you know, when you see Eddie Jones sitting in the stand or Gregor Townsend, look at the banks of analysts that they have round about them now. Look at the laptops that are all round about that are sitting in that management box. They've got a team of analysts who are looking at every part of players, and you wouldn't believe this, but they have it analysed down to which um, shoulder Finn Russell or his opposite number likes to tackle on, which one is weak, which, where, where he tends to, which step, which foot he tends to step with first before. Now, they feed that information back. Sometimes I think there's too much information, but they feed that back to the players and say, this is what he'll do. Your opposite number will want to do this or that. Incredible amount of data they have now. And England's game tomorrow, the key part of their game, and Eddie Jones will be saying it all day today and tomorrow, is stop Finn Russell. We stop Finn Russell and we stop Scotland. It's not as simple as that, but that's that will be a key message. So you'll be seeing these guys going out to hit Finn Russell tomorrow. They'll be off the ball shots that, that Gregor Townsend will be making sure the referee is, is primed about today and tomorrow, because there's no doubt that's going to happen. And they'll believe that if they can stop him, they stop Scotland. So that's where Finn is starting to come into his own and understanding where he can take that because he's a tough guy, really tough cookie. And he takes some hits and he puts some in. One of the toughest foot standoffs we've had in a long time. Um, but he needs help from guys around about him. He can't do it all himself. He has to have other guys stepping up and taking on the ball, giving him some space, taking some of the hits and, and understanding that that's going to happen so trying to stop that as well so yeah Finn is a key man for us the England England know that sometimes in the past I've loved it when I've heard England teams coming out and we had some great Matt Dawson was brilliant for it in the past where he loved to come out and talk about Scotland as if they were this little country little team and I thought this is brilliant he's coming up here underestimating Scotland and even just the swagger, the way they moved, the way they talked about Scotland, you could tell that was when we had our best chance. 
I hate to tell you, but this England team, Owen Farrell, Ben Youngs, Johnny May, they've got terrific respect for this Scotland team. Maro Atoji, I don't see much um, uh, complacency. And after what happened two years ago at Twickenham, I don't think there'll be any complacency from Eddie Jones either. So I don't think we can perhaps use what we've used in the past where we've, we've surprised them. I think this time we're going to have to go toe-to-toe and... And yeah, it will come a little bit will come down to how free Finn Russell gets, how many passes he gets away, and where he manages to stay in the field for the, the full game. Uh, I mean, even Cammy Redpath isn't a surprise. Sorry, Michael. Even Cammy Redpath's not a surprise to him because they obviously he obviously plays for Bath and has played at underage levels. But I mean, right. from what I from what I hear about Redpath, he actually could be. I know he's quite young, but he could be a, one of the standout players for Scotland too. Because from what I hear. He can play off the left, he can play off the right, and his um, sort of mini kicking game is actually quite good as well. So he's going yeah. to be an interesting prospect on Saturday as well. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, footballers who, who bring up their kids. And one of the things that I still get frustrated by the number of footballers out there who, who can't play with both feet and you're going, you're being paid every day. You know, you're training every day and, you, and, and people say you've still got a weak foot. What's that about? Now, Brian Redpath has brought up Cam from an early age to pass off his left hand, which is a, the, a difficult thing to do. You know, more difficult than kicking with your left foot. Play, passing off the left hand is not easy. He's drilled into him. If you want to learn to play the game and enjoy it, you've got to play right hand and left hand. And so his skills now of left hand and right hand are phenomenal. He can step off both feet. He's quite an elegant guy. He's not like his dad, to be honest. He's got more of his, his mum, Jill's, sort of shape, his mum Jill's more tall and, and leggy, Brian was was quite short as a player and a good scrum half Cammy's got, is a bit more rangy and so he's a bit different but I think you're right, I, I have no doubt that, that Cam will go on to be, is going to go on to be a real cra- uh, cracking Scotland player. Tomorrow interestingly he's up against a boy Ollie Lawrence who ke- he came through with in the England ranks, so they both of them know each other really well, Ollie Lawrence is very different, he's a direct um a very direct runner, very strong, very powerful. And he's going to be looking to take Cammy out, knock him back early on and, and try and take the, the wind out of his sails. But as you say, Cam knows them as well. As much as they know him, he's been playing in England in English League. He knows what's coming. He knows how direct the English rugby tends to be. So he'll be ready for it. David, I just wanted to ask you before we go, um, before we let you go tonight, uh, changes in sports very quickly, uh, back to, um, you mentioned Celtic early on, it came out last week that Dominic, um, John, Dominic Mackay will be the new uh, chief executive um, of Celtic um, as of July this year or June. I can't remember actually uh, from Peter Royal. I just want to ask if you get any, if you know Dominic or mm-hmm. uh, you know a bit of kind of inside information. If yeah. I know Dominic really well, and um, it's interesting because a lot of football and Celtic will be seeing him as somebody coming from rugby to football and, and a bit dubious about that. Actually, when he came to rugby, he was coming from from a chap who had no rugby background. He is a former St Aloysius um, pupil, so there's a, a school there with a bit of rugby in it. But Dominic was not a big rugby fan. He was always a Celtic fan. He was known in rugby for being a big Celtic fan. Anytime he could get away and he didn't need to be at rugby events, he was at Parkhead and he was at Celtic. And there's no doubt that this is a dream job for him. What he has developed in rugby has been um, a real understanding of, of sports governing bodies, how sports operate. And he's become 
actually, uh, you know, we talk about Finn Russell and Stuart Hogg has been world class in on the pitch. But Dominic is a quiet guy. He likes being in the shadows. He doesn't like being up front. But behind the scenes, he has become a really influential figure in um, world rugby circles. So he's, he's represented Scotland on the Guinness Premiership, the Guinness Pro 14 on Six Nations. He's been in the Six Nations um, uh, board. He's been in international rugby boards. And Scotland hasn't always had a good name on, on those boards and sometimes actually not been on there at all or, or hardly represented. And Dominic's been in there working Scotland's corner and he's been a big part of big broadcast deals that have been pulled off. He's brought a lot of sponsorship into not just Scottish rugby, but into Six Nations rugby and, and European and international rugby. And he's been a big figure in World Cups. So he's developed, a, you know, he came in as director of communications and marketing, came from a background in, uh, I think it was Diageo or one of the, the drinks companies, um, big drinks companies. And that was his background. But he's developed into effectively a chief executive, you know, at, at Scottish Rugby. You know, the, the job's so big that Mark Dodson has a chief exec role, but Dominic's become chief operating officer. But in all context purposes, he's handled chief exec roles there. So he's coming back to his first love. He's coming back to where he wants to be, his second home, as many people in rugby know it, uh, Parkhead. And he's a very shrewd character. He's, he, he, you know, he know, he's a good operator. He's done really well, particularly with Scottish Government. He's managed to get Scottish Government to put in millions of pounds into rugby over the last 10 years in a way that they were not inclined to do prior to Dominic getting involved. And through COVID, he's been a, a good partner to, to government. So he knows how to, I think, be diplomatic, play the diplomacy, get what he wants. But he, he doesn't tend to sit back. He doesn't suffer fools. And he's, he's, he's a quiet guy, but don't be misled. He's a very strong character too. So you know, I think Celtic have, have actually done, I think they've spotted that. I think Dermot Desmond has seen that. And, and I'm pretty sure Desmond, Dermot Desmond will have known Dominic from his time at Celtic Games over the last um, few years. So I think it's a very shrewd move by Celtic. Yeah, so that, that was a good insight there into Dominic Mackay. David, I just want to say thanks for coming on board and, and joining the team. And thanks for um, being on the show tonight and obviously... Uh, as a as the tournament goes on, you know, Six Nations will uh, will have you back again because it's been brilliant listening to you, your stories tonight. And uh, yeah, so I will speak to you soon and good luck to Scotland tomorrow. Thank you very much, Michael and Matthew. Thanks and all the best. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, Cheers, David. David. Bye-bye. Cheers. So that, so that was... That was David Ferguson there. Uh, I mean, quite, do you know what? Yeah, no, you're right. It, it's very interesting because, um, I mean, obviously it's always interesting when you speak to a student of Bill McLaren because he was probably mm. one of the greatest sports commentators of all time. Um, and also, you know, Bill McLaren did a lot of work outside of of um, the commentating side of things as well, like the Bill McLaren Foundation. So it was mm. it was interesting to hear a student of Bill McLaren talk about rugby so passionately. Yeah, um, and, and it was good to get a wee insight there into Dominic Mackay as well. Yeah, no, I mean, he was a, it was interesting hearing that, and it, it kind of summed up what we kind of thought last week, you know, about... <laughs> um, he was, I mean, from what I understand, you know, the SRU weren't always financially um, in the in a good position like they are just now. And he's brought in a lot of sponsorship like we spoke about last night or last week. And, 
you know, the SRU arguably are in the best position they've ever been in in the professional game since rugby union became professional. So it was interesting hearing that sort of backed up and hearing that, you know, Celtic have actually recruited quite well in this, but sadly, you know, Scottish rugby have lost somebody who's been uh, really beneficial to the sport over the last decade. Before, um, I know that we said we were going to speak about MFL, but because that we were we ended up in Celtic, uh, I suppose we, we will continue to to speak about this weekend football. Just let me run through the rest of the games, Matthew, if that's okay. Uh, yes. that six nations, they kick off tomorrow. Actually, uh, quarter past two. The first game up is um, at the against France. Uh, of course, a big one uh, down in England. England against Scotland, uh, quarter to five. And there's a game on on Sunday as well, uh, three o'clock. Um, it is Wales against Ireland, so very interesting games uh, this weekend in the Six Masons. And also, um, we'll kind of like cover uh, all the games uh, in the next couple of weeks on the show as well. Um, just turning to all then, Matthew. Um, Big news coming out of Celtic yesterday, but I'll run, again, I'll run through the games and we'll come back to that. Uh, Hibs against Aberdeen, that's an interesting game. Levinskin St. Johnson, uh, Ross County, Dungy United, St. Mirren, uh, Kamarok. And let me just run through the first division game for you tomorrow very quickly as well. Arrow against Queen of the South, Abrolf against Gunferman. Dundee against Inverness and Greenock Morkin against Rafe Rovers. But because we ended up speaking about Celtic, we'll begin speaking about Celtic again um, because we were talking about Dominic Mackay. Now, Celtic got the first one during the week against Kamalk, the second one of the year. But there was news coming out yesterday when we met up. Matthew could speak about um, to get tonight's show about um, um, a Yeti first penalty um, because the SFA has um, claimed that he dived for the penalty um, and and, uh, and Celtic is yet to appeal up, but I think they will. So what do you think about that, Matthew? <laughs> oh, I mean, the incident itself, I think, I mean, it, it, was, it was old Andy Walker thing wasn't it as mm. we were saying yesterday you know a yeti was in the box he waited for any sort of contact from the keeper and then he went down now to me i don't think it was a penalty um i think he went down too easily number one so i think he was he was in the wrong there um although he was doing something that probably he's been I don't want to say he's been, it's been coached into him but i think it has because it's an art in itself you know waiting trying to pull the keeper out waiting for that touch and then going down. Um, so I, I don't think it was a penalty, and I think he went down too easy. Whether he dived is open to interpretation, but I think he, he definitely went down too easy. Um, so I think that was the first thing. The second thing is the SFA aren't no, or the SPFL aren't well known for yeah. giving um, you know, back, sort of two-match bans over, these sorts of things. Now, it's not unheard of the SFA have given, or the SPFL have given bans before in regards to um, players simulating, um, but, it's, but it is rare. So 
I think Celtic will appeal this because I, I don't think I, I think he did go down too easily. I don't think it was a dive, um, and I think because it's some you know it's not unheard of, but it is rare. I think Celtic should appeal this, um, and I think a two-match ban is quite um, uh, well as a judgment call on the, on the officials. I think it was a bit much, and I think therefore. Um, it should be at least overturned because when you think of some of the other incidents that have happened over recent weeks and they've been given three match bans for and things like that, I think two match ban for um, what is seen to be simulation is a bit harsh. Um, I spoke to you yesterday about this, Matthew, and I don't have like that the penalty again. If it's a penalty or not, it's you know we, we can speak about it all day and in fact all weekend and to mix with show. But the thing that me you couldn't understand was the SPFL was quite quick at coming out to award him a, a two-game ban because we've actually saw other incidents down the years. And perfect example is Wednesday night at the Rangers game, and, and we'll touch upon that in a minute. Uh, you, you know, that the guy clearly stat, stamped on the, the St. Johnson player, and they just got a yellow card. But my point is that um, if, they, if there's a big incident in the game, you, you do not hear the SFA coming out two weeks late and say, right, okay, we're going to ban him. But for them to come out the day after the game, or sorry, two days after the game then, and say, right, okay, we're going to ban you, I think yeah. that's a bit hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I mean, there's a few things to this. I think, I think number one, I'm fed up with things getting looked at afterwards. I think there's too many mistakes by officials or people not seeing the incident in its entirety or, um, at the time of things. So teams are being punished at that exact time uh, for incidents that referees are not seeing. So you could look at you know, the Morelos one last week against Hibs where it was a clear red card, it was missed, and then he went on to score the winner. In this game, it's another one where you know a player maybe went down too easily. It wasn't a penalty; it was missed. It then added to the fact that Kamarna got beat. Um, so I'm fed up with things happening in retrospect. I think I think if the if the rules of the game can be fixed, so VAR works. Mm. I think VAR in Scotland would be beneficial because Ooh. these. I know, I know. Sorry, Michael, but I think these things would be sorted at the time, and therefore other teams won't be punished. So, like you know, Rangers gained an advantage at Easter Road. Celtic gained an advantage uh, at Kilmarnock. I think these things that that VAR would actually equalise a little bit and things would be sorted at the time, number one. But that odds on to number two. You know, a lot of these things in retrospect, a lot of these punishments happen with games that are on television and they're getting um, very large media presence uh, and media reports there. You know, if this mm. game happened, say, there was an incident at a Motherwell game, I think, what? this week where somebody, there was a clear red card incident, somebody ended up with a broken nose, but nobody talks about it because it wasn't on TV, it's not one of the large two, and therefore a lot of these things go unpunished yet because, you know, Rangers the week before with Morelos, that was on national TV it gets seen, therefore the uh, authorities um, make comment on it and give the bans out, mm. again Celtic, it's on national TV um, 
Celtic get punished because it, because it was clearly seen and a lot of people are making noise about it. But I think these things have to be level. You know, if, it, if it, this is good enough for Celtic and Rangers to be punished retrospectively because their games are on national TV, I think there needs to be a mechanism in place where it's fair across the board and things yeah. are being cited for all teams retrospectively afterwards. Um, so that's the two things I would take from this incident. But, I mean, again, if there was a big incident at the weekend not involving... Uh, Celtic or Rangers and the Rangers games on the telly then Celtic fans will be shouting at, at the TV well surely you're going to pull him up and also on that case Matthew the Rangers games on on Sunday so fans can, if, uh, if there's a big incident at the Rangers Hamilton game then if, if my le- I'm not no going to mention anybody's name here but if something make if something makes a big incident or something makes a, a tackle or whatever, you'll have millions of circuit fans up in arms could say, Well, wait a minute, where's your consistency now? Yeah, and I think that's why consistency is such an important thing across the board and it's not just the you know, the big Glasgow too. It has to be consistency right across um the SPFL, the Premier League. And it has and that's why I think VAR and having someone there to explain these decisions would help because I think a lot of these things are being missed and the referees are kind of getting away with just saying, oh, i never seen it and that's the end of it. VAR would stop that because VAR would force the referee to see these things and force a decision one way or another. And then if they don't agree with what everyone else sees, then the referee would have to be forced to um, give their reasoning as to why a, a red card or a yellow card or a penalty was or wasn't given um, because right now there's too much discrepancy going across this league and teams are being punished and it tends to be that the lower, the smaller teams outside the Glasgow are the teams being punished because even though a Yeti's been banned now for two games whether you agree with it or not, they've already lost that penalty. You know, last week it was Hibs, you know, they didn't get a red card Morelos has been banned after the event but, you know, he's stayed on the pitch and he's got the winner at Easter Road. So it's not fair mean, on that team. So does that mean they're going to kick away the goal then if it wasn't a penalty? Well, I think if VAR was there, the penalty might not have been given. And I think that's probably a fair reflection of how that was because Kamarnock then wouldn't have conceded the penalty. I, I yet to even though he's been given a two-game ban, it's ironic because if that was seen in real time by VAR, he would have got a yellow card. There'd have been no ban. So... That's an interesting point. I think VAR would have seen it, Kamarnock wouldn't have suffered, and Ayeti would have been booked for diving. And that would have been probably the end of it. Um, but because it's, the VAR isn't present in the Scottish League, and because we're all looking at it retrospectively, Kamarnock have already lost that goal, and Ayeti's now been given a two-game ban. It makes no sense to me. Um, so I think there has to be a real look at whether VAR comes in, number one, and number two, how the rules around VAR will work. For next season, I'll be very interested to watch between now and the end of the season if there's any more uh, big incidents. But uh, Celtic won on the park, penalty or not, 4 0 on the night. Um, and that was a good performance from Celtic. Okay, you could argue that Kamal's gone through a bag run, biggest lost in manager, they've got to fight relegation. But it's, but it's, a, it's all saying that at the end of the day, You've got to beat the teams in front of you. Yeah, I mean, well, from a Kamarnock point, well, I think for both of the teams, actually, both of the interim manager at Kamarnock and obviously Lennon at Celtic, both of the managers were actually looking for a bit of a, you know, performance 
uh, on Wednesday night because they've, they've been in bad form. Um, you know, interim boss uh, for Kilmarnock, Fowler called for his players to show that they were a good side, they were willing to battle for the jersey, they were up for a fight, which is all things that Kilmarnock sides in the past have had, but for this season, they've not. Mm. Um, to me, they showed fight. They showed that mm. they were up for the jersey, but they just allowed Celtic too much of the ball. Um, too many of the Kilmarnock players drifted in and out the game from a talent point of view. And to me, you know, Celtic, especially in the second half, uh, picked them off way too easy um, with the amount of time that the Kilmarnock players allowed them. So they did show fight, they did show they were willing, but there's a lot of improvement to be had in that Kilmarnock team to get them to the level they were under Steve Clark a few years ago um, because they've fallen way too off the pace. Um, at the moment and Celtic on the other side you know I thought John Joe Kenny was probably the best uh, player in the park for Celtic I thought he had a really good debut he looked assured he had neat passes neat touches he looked like the Celtic right back that Celtic should have had at the start of the season because um, he, he could get forward but he also could defend which is also obviously very important for a Celtic full back mm. that they can actually defend first and foremost and I thought he could Um and it's a win, really, that Lennon needed and eased the pressure on Lennon. But you know yourself, it's not going to ease up because Celtic have a game this weekend. Uh, Lennon really is only one game away from a crisis. Mm. Um, and But the more he wins, you know, the more he's under the illusion that he's going to keep the job. I, mm. I don't think this. I don't think all of these results should um, take away from the fact that it's been a bad season and Celtic need change. Mm. Um, but, you know, it eased the pressure on him. It was a good result and it was frustrating from a Celtic point of view because you saw what Celtic should have been this year uh, at Rugby Park and Celtic haven't had it for the vast majority of the year. But I thought they played well on Wednesday night. Or hey, Tuesday let's, night. Let's just move on to the welcome back case on both the Saturday games in a minute, Matthew. But move on to the Rangers game and, and Sunday they, they play Hamilton with that commentator. Well, it's it's well. Rangers, Rangers was on Wednesday night, wasn't it? I'm getting my yeah. days confused. COVID is making a mockery of my days. Um, I thought Rangers, Rangers haven't been at their best for a while. Um, but the difference we've said this all along. The difference between this season compared to last season is um, they have the ability to rack up victories when they're not playing bad. You know, last season and the year before. If Rangers were playing well, they'd comfortably beat teams. But if they were playing poor, they would inevitably drop points left, right and centre. Um, but this year, when the intensity drops off, they still manage to comfortably get wins under their belt. And that is a sign of um, of champions, really. I mean, you can't say anything else other than Rangers have been extremely impressive this year. Um, it's, been, it's been a time when really Rangers, when they play badly uh, or they're playing poorly, Players have, have come to you know have to step up to the mark, and I thought Hadji did that on uh, on Wednesday night. His fine strike, it was an amazing goal. Um, mm. Was all that was needed for Rangers uh, to get the victory, and it's quite a scary fact. Like I said, they're, they're playing bad, they're picking up the wins, and they're now only six games away from having from winning the Premiership um, and bringing it back to Tybrox for the first time in ten years. So um, they're on the mat march. They're on. They're they're winning games. They're not playing great, but they're still picking up the points. Their defence is still outstandingly strong. Again, they've only conceded seven goals this year. Um, they've scored sixty-seven. They're doing everything right. They've won four of the last five games. Um, 
and like I said, they weren't at their best on Wednesday. But Hadji hasn't been. Strange enough, Hadji's not been at his best for half of this season. But he came, mm. he came up trumps on Wednesday night, and I thought he was, he was really good. St. Johnson, on the other hand, you know, we'll mention St. Johnson. I thought they actually played quite well. Um, defensively, they were really strong. They had a few chances in attack, um, but they just didn't manage to take that chance and get that goal. They remain eighth. They're just four points above the relegation playoff game. But I don't think St. Johnson will be in trouble. I think St. Johnson are very, as Rangers found out, they're a very hard team to beat. And I think that will see them through, really. Um to get out of that relegate any sort of relegation trouble they may or may not be in. Um and I think St Johnson will be comfortable in mid table by the end of the season. Um but Rangers, you know, Rangers look like they're going to march to the title and you know there's an opportunity for them to win it at Celtic Park next month and I think they'll be gearing themselves up for it. And you know what? I, the thing is with this, I don't think Rangers will win it at Celtic Park. And I tell you why, not because of anything Rangers will do. I can't see Celtic winning all their games between now and uh, the old firm game in March. Um, so, um, coming up, we've got the MFL preview with Matthew. Just to run over the few games as well, uh, the team of the moment, um, you would say outside Rangers at the moment is Livingston. They're, um, they're at home to St. Johnson. Uh, that, that looks an interesting game, Matthew. We'll see that game. I mean, that's an interesting one because the game of the weekend is at Easter Road and it's Hibs Aberdeen. Okay, then. And I thought, <laughs> well, no, and there's a reason why I say this and it connects to the game you just mentioned. Obviously, Aberdeen are not on a great run and Hibs are not on a great run, but obviously, because they're playing each other, one, if not both of them, will drop points at Easter Road on, on Saturday. Livingston are playing St. Johnson. Livingston will probably win that game, I think, because they're obviously, like you say, the form team. That would bring them up to 42 points. Now, if Aberdeen drop or lose at Easter Road, that would mean Livingston are only two points off fourth place. So the game at Easter Road is quite an important one for one of them because if Livingston won, Livingston will be seriously breathing down these two sides' neck for the last European spot um, from the Premiership. So that's why I think Livingston will get the win um, on this weekend and I could see Hibs beating Aberdeen which means Livingston will be seriously seriously challenging Aberdeen for a fourth spot especially after going up to Pataudry uh, during the week and pretty much handing Aberdeen a lesson in how to play football Okay um, we're a bit pushed for time this week so um, because we were talking about rugby and that was a very interesting conversation that we had for David so um, sorry to, well, I, I was going to say quickly, Ross Kent and Dundee and Eggig, I might fancy Ross Kent because Dundee and Eggig is on a poor run of form and I saw them against Marlow during the week and he, even though they scored a goal 2-1, uh, I think that game finished, but they, they were a very poor team that, that yeah. night and they've been a poor team for weeks, Matthew. Yeah, they've, they started off the season really well. Um, they've struggled in recent weeks. Ross County are a different side under Yogi Hughes um, completely. Um, and I tend to agree with you. I think Ross County will come away with the win now. Um, so, yeah, so it's a bit you've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today, Matthew About five minutes to run through what is, to me, one of the best sporting occasions Sorry. of the year. Um, 
Super Bowl 55 at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. It's just two days away. So I'm pretty excited about it. Not as excited as England Scotland, but I'm pretty excited. Um, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be up against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and a game that I think will be one for the ages. I say that before and normally it doesn't come out, but this does have the ingredients to be one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time. Um, this is actually the second time that the Bucks and the Chiefs have actually played this year. Um, but this time, obviously, it's a lot more important as the Lombardi trophies on the line. Um, and it all comes down to, to this game. But it is important to say they have played already this season. Um in a game that sort of maybe gave a little bit of an indication as to um, who they think will win. I mean, Kansas City Chiefs uh, probably looked um, the better team out of the two last time. It was about week 12 they played. Um, the Chiefs went up big early. They had a 17-0 lead uh, as Tyreek Hill exploded past Tampa Bay's defence. Um, but strangely enough, the Buccaneers did pull... Uh, pretty close to them in the fourth quarter um, and ultimately even though they were 17-0 up quite early on Andy Reid and co eventually had to see a 27-24 victory so it was quite a close encounter in the end um, and I, I can see this game being within maybe within three to seven points when I think Kansas City Chiefs might have too much for them um, in the long run but I think Tampa Bay will run them a lot closer than than we think, you know, because the Buccaneers obviously have Tom Brady. Um, at forty three, Tom Brady has hasn't. I mean, he's not been perfect. He's been he's been up and down, but you know, the last half of the season he's played really well. Um, they won. They went eleven and five this year overall. They got into the playoffs. They beat Washington. Uh, they beat New Orleans in New Orleans. And then last week they came up against Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay and we all thought Green Bay would go on to win the NFC title. But Tom Brady threw deep, he threw early, he threw often and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers got into a two-score lead in that game that the Tampa Bay, the, sorry, that the, um, the, the Green Bay really could never get back into. So the Buccaneers are coming into this form but the Chiefs are no strangers to the Super Bowl. Um, they won it last year. This year they were... I mean, this year they've been arguably even better than last year. Um, they, they went on to a 14-2 finish with Patrick Mahomes being arguably the best player of the season. They were number one in the AFC seed overall. Their defence is really good. And their offence obviously has Patrick Mahomes, but it has Tyreek Hill, it's got Travis Kelsey, it's got uh, Miko Hardman in there. So it's got weapons all over the park offensively. Defensively, they're strong. They, they make opportunistic um, opportunistic plays that either result in them getting the ball back or does result in times them getting defensive touchdowns. So uh, I just can't see any other win than the Kansas City Chiefs, mainly because I think the Chiefs defensively are stronger than the Buccaneers. But, um, you know, as we saw in Week 12, the game will be close. It will be tight. I think the bookies, if you like a fluster, um, have Kansas City Chiefs as a slight favourites. Um, and I think they are probably probably this slightly higher favourite. Um, but, you know, I've looked at some of the American forecasts. The Kansas City Chiefs are 55% favourite to beat Tampa Bay, which shows you how close it is. And the av- average sim scores when you are at the bookies tends to be Chiefs 28, Buccaneers 26 as the final score. That's how tight it is. It should be one for the ages on Sunday into Monday. Stay up and watch it.
Yeah, it's on Sky and BBC as well. Just to tell you very, very quickly, Matthew, in women's uh, football news, that um, obviously Scotland can qualify for the Euros, what is a bit of a shame. However, Scotland um, final European Championship qualifiers has been moved to Cyprus due to the restrictions because of the coronavirus. So they will face Cyprus on Friday the 19th of February and Portugal on the 23rd of February. So good luck to the girls there. Thanks for listening this week. And uh, if you want to download the podcast, I'll be available on indie.regal. And we'll see you soon here on Indie Live Regal.